Well, those who are coming in right now, thank you so much for joining us again. And if you're joining us online, I want to welcome you as well to Walk Church. And I'm so grateful that we get to continue in our sermon series that we've titled New State of Mind. New State of Mind, this idea, this reality, this biblical concept that teaches us and reminds us that when we become a new creation in Christ, we get a new mind, that he transforms the way we think. And not only that, but what we think about matters, matters to God himself. So God doesn't just look at us and our actions. I think before that, he looks at our hearts. He looks at who we are, and he looks at what we think about, and it matters. I love this quote from A.W. Tozer. We've, we've used it as a pillar quote uh, for this series. He says it like this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So when we start thinking about God, and maybe you're here today and this is the first time you've come to church in a long time, or maybe you've been coming to church for a long time, but you never think about God. It's just become a routine of religion. Jesus isn't in, in, uh, interested in that. He's interested in a new mind and the right type of thinking, and we're going to talk a little bit about that today. So we're in our fourth installment of this new state of mind series. In week one, we talked about what it means to think New, and we looked at Romans 12, 2, which challenges us to renew our mind on a daily basis. On week number two, we talked about think kingdom and how Jesus calls us to think bigger than ourselves. In Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, he says, hey, don't just think about the things of this world, but think about his kingdom. Jesus is the king of the kingdom, amen? And he calls us to new living, kingdom living. Last week, we talked what it, what it, what it looks like to think gospel, to think gospel, to think about the, the things we just sang about, the, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the return of Jesus, and how he's with us even in this moment. I use this quote to talk about gospel living uh, from C.J. Mahaney in his book, The Cross Center of Life. He says, if there's anything in life that we should be passionate about, it's the gospel. Remember, gospel means good news. If you uh, want to revisit this message, you can find it on the app or on walkchurch.com. And, and I don't mean passionate only about sharing it with others. I mean passionate in thinking about it, dwelling on it, rejoicing in it, allowing it to color the way we look at the world. Gospel-centered thinking, cross-centered living happens by cross-centered thinking. And I talked about this little book. It's a small book called The Cross-Centered Life. Um, and we're going to have them for sale after our service today, uh, right there in our merch table. They're just going to be $5, which is a steal. And I would encourage you to pick up one of the Cross Center Life books written by CJ Man. It was a treasure in my life. You could probably read it in a day, two days. Um, for me, it would take a week because I'm a little bit slower. But you can read it, all right? And that's the key. And I think you'd be encouraged by it. On this fourth week, I want us to talk about this new subject that informs our thinking, and that's very valuable for doing all the things that we talked about, and that is think biblical. Think biblical. Now, you might be thinking right now, man, that's a given, that we're all here, and we should know to think biblical. But for me, I, I was going to church for a little bit before I really started to realize why should I think biblical, or is the Bible reliable? Is the Bible credible? How do I think biblical? 
Why should I think biblical? Well, first off, I'm going to give a couple answers, and then we're going to talk about this subject uh, more holistically in this sermon today. Uh, First, we should think biblical because God calls us to think biblical. I want you to see it written in the law of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6 through 7 says it like this. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. That to me shows me that God calls me to think biblically. God says, you know, when, when, when I give you words, and we have a whole book of his words, we have 66 books, a library of his words called the Bible. He says, you shall think about these things. They shall be on your heart. I was fascinated when I heard a scientific study that said there's 2 million brain cells in the heart. That, so, so, for example, when God says the thoughts of your heart, when does your heart start thinking? Because your heart is connected to your brain. It's your heart and your brain. There's, there's transactions going on all day long between the heart and the brain. And so he says, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Like you should take your heart and dip it in the word of God. And that will inform the way you think. And then he says, that will inform the way you live. You'll start, that'll start changing your family. Teach these things to your children and talk about these things when you sit in your house and Talk about these things when you walk on your way and think about these things when you lie down in your bed. And then think about these things when you get up out of bed. This is the type of thinking that we're talking about. This new state of mind to think biblical. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. I heard this illustration a while back that for a second sounded appealing but then it got blew up. I want to talk about it a little bit with you. Maybe you've heard of this illustration. It's an ancient Middle Eastern illustration. It's the illustration of the elephant. And here's this elephant, and the illustration goes that there was a bunch of religious people in the room that were trying to think rightly about God. And they said, oh, I got the right answer about God. Another person said, I got the right answer about God. And they said, you know what? It's really just like a big elephant. And so you got one guy who's standing at the front of the elephant, and he's, he's touching the tusk of the elephant. He goes, you know what? God is like a spear. He's, he's kind of long and sharp, and he's, he's like a spear. And then, no, 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 he, God is more like a fan, said the man that was holding the elephant's ear. And then there's somebody at the bottom that is saying, no, I think he, he's more like a snake. And then somebody's like, no, he's, he's more like a tree, the God that I'm feeling. And then there's somebody that's just on the side of the elephant feeling. He's like, no, he's... He's more like a wall, guys. And then, of course, somebody's in the tail, and he's touching the tail, and he's like, no, nah, I think God is more like the tail. And the illustration goes that, hey, none of us can really know who God is, or none of us can really know what God is like. We just can only get the peace that we're experiencing. And now, that sounds appealing until the elephant says, no, that's my tail, Until the elephant speaks and says, nope, that's not a tree, that's my leg. Until the elephant says, I'm an elephant. That's that's the reality of why we can think biblical. Because God says, no, you can know me. You can know all about me. I'm a God who speaks. This this illustration breaks down if... 
if the, if the elephant doesn't say anything, maybe this could be true. This doesn't relate to God because God speaks. Amen? God is a God who is speaking and not just speaking just to speak. He's speaking so we could know him. Reading the Bible is not primarily about getting more information. Reading the Bible is primarily about you and I knowing God. Getting to know him, not just informationally, but relationally. If you want to get to know somebody, you know what you should do? Maybe you should try it today. Maybe there's somebody here in the church right now, and you're like, you know, I want to get to know that person. You know what you should do? Talk to them. (laughs) Wow. What an incredible concept of just saying, hello, what is your name? You get, to know, you get to know the person's name. And then maybe what do you do? The person may tell you what they do. Why don't you do that and say, God, what's your name? What do you do? And what, what if he were to speak to you and say, I'm God. And I got a message for you. That, that means think biblical. I want to give us some reasons on why we can think biblical and how to think biblical. When it comes to thinking biblical, I'm going to start with the first point. It's the first point of the last three sermons. It'll be the first point of the next few. All right, I'm giving y'all the trailer. Here it is. Number one, think Jesus. Think Jesus. Think biblical by thinking Jesus. Now, why is that the first point for think biblical? You think Jesus because Jesus thought biblical. Does that make sense? We should think biblical by thinking Jesus because Jesus thought biblical. Not only did Jesus think biblical, Jesus is biblical. Let me give it to you out of John chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14. Will y'all join me in reading this off the screen? Ready? One, two, three. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen. Here's, this, here's what this verse is saying. This is a loaded verse. This is a very controversial verse. In the beginning was the Word, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse in the Bible. And the Word was with God. Everybody's cool with that. And the Word was God. Now that's challenging right there. So the Word, the word this, these words our God, and the Word became flesh. Wow. So, so the Bible's now putting skin on, dwelt among us, hung out with us. We've seen his glory, says the gospel writer John, who is Jesus' disciple and friend, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know who that Son is? His name's Jesus. Thinking Jesus is thinking biblical because Jesus is the Word. The Word became flesh. There's only one Word. It's it's Him. It's Him. So when we think Jesus, we start to think biblical. We know who Jesus is because we have the Scriptures recorded for us here today, and they're powerful, supernatural. We'll talk more about that. Here's one of the things that Jesus said in John chapter 5. Now, John chapter 5 records Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees. Now, who are Pharisees? Pharisees are the men of God in this specific culture who knew the Bible the best. They were the scholars and the religious studiers of God's word. If you had a question about the scriptures, the Torah, the Pentateuch, you would go find a Pharisee and say, teach me, disciple me. Jesus is engaging with the Pharisees here, the religious elite. He says, you study the scriptures diligently. 
He affirms that. Because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. What a mic drop moment. Like, I'm appalled. Like, Jesus just told the Pharisees, the religious elite, that the things that they're studying were actually talking about Jesus. That the left side of your Bibles, in other words, the Old Testament, the OT, is on display painting a beautiful picture of Jesus who was and is to come. There are prophetic words all throughout the Old Testament that's pointing to a coming king from Psalm chapter 22 that talks about the cross, from Isaiah chapter 53 that talks about the suffering servant who would take on the iniquity of us all by dying and, and, and by his blood we would be set free. From Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 when, when God speaks to Eve and says, I will send a seed who will come from a woman who will crush the serpent's head. Who's that talking about? That's Jesus. When God looks at, in, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, when God says, let us make man in our image, who's he talking to? Who's us? It's God talking to his son and his spirit. Thinking biblical means to think Jesus. Now, Jesus thought biblical. Now, maybe you would say, how do you know? Well, because Jesus tells us in the scriptures. Let me put this up on the screen for you. We see this um, 46 times in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus uses the phrase, it is written. That should declare to us that Jesus knew his Bible. So 46 times Jesus is in dialogue with lost people, saved people, Pharisees, self-righteous people, demonically depressed and oppressed people, all types of people Jesus engaged with. And he would always say this, it is written. And what he's doing there is he's validating and affirming the Old Testament. Jesus was an Old Testament guy. He is continuously quoting from the book of Genesis. He's continuously quoting from the book of Exodus. He's quoting from Deuteronomy. He's quoting from the book of Psalms all throughout his teaching. He's quoting from the book of Isaiah, the prophet. He's quoting from the book of Daniel. Look, here's a, here's a cool component. There is a big discussion on if the book of Daniel is actually a real biblical book in scholarly circles. Is the book of Daniel... A, a real story. Did Daniel really exist? And you know what the, the crux, the pillar as to why we believe it does? There's one, there's one answer. Because in one place, Jesus says the book of Daniel. And in that moment, validates that Daniel is a real book and a real person that refers to a real specific time in history. And it's something that we should dig into and read. To believe in Jesus is to believe in the Old Testament. To believe in Jesus is to affirm Genesis and Exodus. To believe in Jesus, to think Jesus is to think how he thought, which he says, it is written. One of my favorite it is written moments comes from when Jesus is having this battle with Satan. Maybe you're familiar with it, right? He's, he's having the, the first thing Jesus does when he starts his, his ministry is what? Goes up to this mountain and the enemy comes and tries to tackle Jesus. And Jesus speaks back these words from him. That we often quote here at Walk Church in Matthew chapter 4. Let's look at it together. Jesus looks at the devil and says, it is written. 
At that moment, I think the devil shudders. Jesus says, I'm going, my, my weapon is the word. I'll pull the sword out and chop your head off, Satan, right now with the it is written moment. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. Everybody say every word. Every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus, therefore, affirming scripture. Jesus validating the Bible, which validates me to say, everybody, if you're with me, say, let's eat. Let's eat, right? We're eating today from God's word. Not only is God's word credible, God's word is edible. Amen? Let's eat from God's word. That was good right there. That was good right there. I like that. I'm going to use that. I'm going to use that later. Um, God's word is edible. Let's eat from God's word today. Spiritually eat from it. Don't, like, take a chunk out of your Bible. That wouldn't be beneficial. Don't, but, but we'll pray for you afterwards. God is saying, hey, it is written. Jesus is looking at the enemy and saying, it is written. You, you can resist Satan. Because what does Satan want to do? He wants to trick you. He wants to come at you in your mind. Because if he can change the way you think, he'll change the way you live. And so you need to resist the devil. But how do you resist the devil? How do you resist this spiritual force that wants to steal you, kill you, and destroy you? Here's how you do it, by saying, it is written. James chapter 4, verse 7. Let's look at it together. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. It is written. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We have a picture and a model in Jesus who looks at the devil and says, it is written, and the devil flees. Now, the devil tried another time after that. Jesus quoted another scripture. He does three it is written's. And in that moment, the devil says, I can't get this guy. His word game is too sharp. He keeps cutting me up every time. Keeps stabbing me with this sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Think Jesus by thinking biblical. Let me give you the second point when it comes to think biblical is think historical. Think historical. And this may be a good moment for you to take a screenshot with your phone if you like. I want to give you some historical Bible stats that are beneficial for all of us to know. Maybe this would be like a, a, a treatment of the Bible 2.0. The historical Bible stats that I think would be beneficial is that you would know that the Bible is a collection of 66 books. So this isn't just one book uh, per se. It's actually a library of books that's all recorded for us and for our good. 66 books put together, canonized for us, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, written by 40 different authors written over a period of approximately 1,500 years, written on three different continents, scribed in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek primarily, and then just a couple sentences by Jesus in Aramaic, all telling one narrative, and that is that Jesus saves. The entirety of the Bible is really one big story from Genesis to Revelation that's saying Jesus is the king. That, so, so thinking biblical is thinking Jesus, this right here is historical truth. That, that this just didn't just drop down from heaven out of nowhere. And it's like, oh, whoa, Bible. No, like this is 1,500 years of work. Penned together. Scrutinized to the highest degree. Stamped on, stood on, all type. You know, Nietzsche said, God is dead. He'll, he won't be around. And he is not dead and he's around. Amen. Right? Like God is alive and in full effect 
Today, and his Bible still remains the number one best-selling book in the world. It has been since we've been counting. Like, there's going to be more Bibles sold and given away in 2019 than there was before in any other book. Because the Bible is reliable, historical, credible, edible, and all those things, right? Uh, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, 1,500 years, written by 40 different authors. Now, let me ask you this. 40 different authors of the Bible, 40 different authors, all telling the same story, not contradicting each other at all over a period of 1,500 years. What is that? That means that this book is different, different from any other book. This is not the Hunger Games. This is not Harry Potter. This is not your favorite fictional or non-fictional book. This right here is 1,500 years recorded, canonized, uh, scholarly, strong, prophetic, wisdom, anointed fact. It's what we're talking about when we talk about the Bible. An apologist. An apologist is somebody who studies the Bible and uh, validates the Bible and then defends the Bible in different debates and speeches and stuff like this. Uh, an apologist that I sometimes learn from is named Vodi Bauckham. And here's one of the things that he says. Pastor Vodi says, the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies, and they claim to be divine rather than human in origin. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the Bible. That's why it would be beneficial for us to think biblical, to think biblical, that this book is historical, incredible, and reliable. Scholar, textual scholars, in order to validate whether a book is historical or not, will go back to history and find how many specific copies of the scriptures we actually have. I want to put a chart up on the screen for you that you can see. I know it's a little bit small print, but maybe you can see it from where you're sitting. And these are the, the, the books that we have, the scholarly texts that we have to affirm as much history as far back as we can go. Now, now Homer in the Iliad from 800 BC. Now, maybe you are familiar with this from school at some point in your life. Now, this is uh, one of the biggest ones that we have. There's 643 recorded copies of Homer. Like, you could go to a museum, and you could find where Homer is located, the original copies, uh, not the actual original, but the copies of the original. You'll find 643, which stamps, it's historical. It's, it's a real thing. Now, let's jump over to Plato in 400 B.C., right? Now, we have seven copies of Plato's writings. Seven copies. Now, I don't ever hear anybody debating if Plato existed or not. Like, they, we champion the seven. Like, look at all seven of Plato's philosophical, historical writings, right? Pliny, the younger. Now, we got seven for him. Now, Caesar, right? Caesar is a huge component in school, right? We got to learn about history. Well, you got to learn about Caesar and his Gallic Wars. We got 10 copies that affirm that Caesar existed and he did some crazy stuff. Now, his, his, this is historical. I'm not, this, this is for us to learn at a scholarly level this morning. The New Testament, which is recorded for us in the Bible, historical book on 85, 50 through 100, has 5,366 copies. 
which should show us, if you're gonna believe anything, believe in the scriptures. Right, like you stack up the New Testament copy. I mean, if you ever get a chance and you, can get, to, you get to go to Washington, D.C., go to the Historic Bible Museum. It's one of the most beautiful, fascinating museums in the world. I had a chance to go there a couple months ago, and I, I, I happened to be only there for two hours because I had to catch a flight. And, and, and that was the worst part about it, is I only made it to like the second or third floor. There was like six floors. We have 5,366 copies of New Testament texts that have been examined and, and, and carefully handled and put the microscope on and collect the dust from them and go up inside the Dead Sea Scroll and, and look at these, these copies that are historical for us. If you're going to believe history, you have to wrestle with the Bible. And you have to make a stance on what you believe to be true. Now, some people say, oh, yeah, those New Testament guys, those were just some fishermen. They just made all that up. That has got to be one of the, the, the phoniest arguments in the history of the world. Because if that were to be the case, then there, it, it would have had to be made up, and there would have had to be a lot of people in on it. Till this day, there would have because in order for those copies to be passed down, and those copies to be passed down, they would have said, hey, man, but you got to make sure that you cover it up. None of it actually happened. No. No, we actually have copies not just of New Testament letters. We have copies of people that were at John's Bible study in his house validating the things about the living Savior. That there was once this man named Jesus, the copies of the letters from Josephus that are recorded for us that say there was this man named Jesus and there was this man named Herod. And this, this is history, guys, that we could do well to learn from think. Biblical, think historical. Let me give you the third point. Think reliable, that, that we can think reliable. When it comes to these eyewitness accounts, one of our greatest accounts is found in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. Now, there's four Gospels in the New Testament. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, Matthew, Mark, and John happen to all be people that were in Jesus' life as eyewitnesses. Matthew was the tax collector who decided to follow Jesus. Isn't it neat that Jesus invites tax collectors and sinners onto his team? Uh, uh, maybe we'll give hope to somebody in the room. It does for me. Right? Like he, call, he like went right up to Matthew and was like, hey, you follow me. And everybody was like, oh, why him? Because he would be a Bible writer. God will use you. Now you got John, right? The gospel writer John who Jesus, you know, John says he's the disciple that Jesus loved. And then there's young Mark, who was a young man at the time. And then there's Luke. Now, Luke is different. Luke was not an eyewitness of Jesus. Luke was a philosopher. Luke was a historical writer. Luke was a physician. Luke is a scholar. Everybody says that the best Greek in the entire Bible is written by Luke because he was the smartest guy writing it. Right? Now, here's what Luke says in the first four verses of his gospel. Many have undertaken to draw upon account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. What he's saying is there's a whole lot of people writing about Jesus right now. Many people are trying to write about it and figure out what just happened. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind... Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from 
the beginning, he continues here, Luke, uh, he says, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, who we believe is the man that he's writing to, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Here's what Luke is saying. He's saying, Mr. Theophilus, Theophilus is probably the one that's funding Luke's journey. Theophilus is probably this rich man who's saying, all right, Luke, you're the best scholar I know. Go figure out if this Jesus stuff is real or not. Here's however much money you need and give me the most orderly account. I, don't, I, I want the best, most thorough account of whether or not Jesus existed and what exactly he did. That's why Luke's gospel is so different. It's the same, but there's stuff in Luke that's not anywhere else. And here's what I believe Luke did. I think Luke said, okay, I'm going to go on this journey and I'm going to figure out what really happened. And so in Luke's gospel, you have this long Christmas story. Mark doesn't even have a Christmas story. John doesn't have a Christmas story. Matthew gives you a chapter and a half of a Christmas story. Luke's Christmas story is like, this is still going? We get to learn about Elizabeth. Elizabeth wrote a whole song, Elizabeth's song. We get to see this in-depth conversation between Elizabeth and Mary, and then, then we have Mary's song. And then Mary had this moment with the angel and, and Joseph. We have all that because of Luke. And I, I think what Luke did was he set up a, a one-on-one meeting with Mary. And Luke said, all right, Mary, the big deal here is this virgin birth stuff. I need to know if it was real or not. Tell me everything that happened. So you met this girl named Elizabeth. She was a cousin. Then she had a baby named John the Baptist, and he leaped in her womb. And, and, and Luke gives us the full account of Mary's testimony. We have all these parables in Luke's gospel, like the parable of the prodigal son. That's found nowhere else. But somebody, somebody heard that, and they said, Luke, you got to put this in your gospel. One day, Jesus was teaching us, and he told us this story about the prodigal son, the sons. They were both lost, and they came back to know him and stuff like that. And Luke was like, I'm going to put that in my gospel. Luke's, Luke's account is, is, is reliable because he went and sat down with all the eyewitnesses to have the most orderly and thorough account. He talked to the eyewitnesses. Now, let me show you what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 to also affirm the reliability of the Bible. Paul says that Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. It was prophetic. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500. What? Did you ever know that? I read that and was like, wow. Jesus, see, if, if, if they're faking it, there's a whole lot of people in on it. Jesus appeared to the, appeared to the 12. He appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. There must have been this moment where Jesus just showed up. It's 500 eyewitnesses. They're the resurrected king, most of whom are still alive. Paul's like, you can go talk to them. Yeah, they they had a moment like Jesus was there. Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then he appeared to all the apostles. Last of all, as to an untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul says Jesus appeared to me, and you can read about his encounter in Acts chapter 9 when, when Jesus showed up and Paul got knocked down. He was like, wow, who is that? And Jesus says, it's me, the one you're persecuting. And Paul had an encounter with Jesus. To quote from Vodi Bakum one more time, he says it like this. He says, the most well-attested fact in all of ancient history is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can clap for it. Yeah, I believe it. 
I'm sharing this with you because maybe today you're in one of two places. One, you're ignorant to these things. You have no idea. Someone gave you a Bible and they said, read it, and you believed it. But you never knew why. And maybe you're not sure as to why. I want to give you some different things to think about as to why this book is historical and is reliable. Because if it's not historical and it's not reliable, then we can all go home. Right? But if it is, we should listen. And it should change the way we think. In fact, the most well-attested fact in all of ancient history, I showed you on the chart, Jesus in the New Testament is blowing everything else out of the water by thousands. Historically. There are atheist scholars that have said, hey, I don't believe all that stuff, but it is the most accurate and historical pieces of work that we have more than anything else. you got to choose what to do with it, but that doesn't change if it's historical or not. Let me give you uh, the fourth point, and we're getting ready to close here pretty soon. The, the fourth one is this, think supernatural. Think supernatural. That this word of God, when you read it, is actually quite dangerous. What I mean by that is it might change you because it's supernatural. This book right here, it really is. Let me show you 1 Peter chapter 2, chapter 1, verse 23 says, You have been born again, which is interesting language, right? Like how could, some of y'all are like, man, I need to be born again. I need to like, I need to hit the reset button. No, I need to hit the off button and then go on again, right? Like not just, a re, not just restart, like not just sleep. I need to be like rebooted. I need to just reborn. You have been born, not a perishable seed, but an imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. I'll tell you what, this word right here is living and abiding. Have you ever heard anything else described as that? The living and abiding word of God. And, and this living and abiding word, when it gets into us, it starts coming out of us, right? Let me, let me finish this statement for me. It's a reality statement. Finish it for me. I need some help here. What goes in must come Come on, say it. What, what goes in must come? Out. All right, out. Okay, so we, do we agree with that? Yeah. Okay, so, so let me show you this verse, and let's see if this makes sense. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So if you begin to put the word in you, faith will come out of you. If you start to put the word in you, then then Christ will start coming out of you. Some people say, man, I just need to increase my faith. You, what you need to do is increase your word. Faith comes by hearing the word. Man, I just really want to grow closer to my relationship with Jesus. When was the last time you read? Six months ago. It, come, it happens through hearing. So if you don't hear it in the word and you move, you're not moving by faith. You're moving by your own strength. But if you hear it in the word, you begin to start walking by faith and walking in him. What you put in must come out. So some of y'all are struggling with the topic of purity, maybe. And you're like, man, I just can't think pure. Well, what are you putting in? That's what's going to come out. Some of you are thinking, man, I, I really want to start, I want to let go of this pride. Well, what are you putting in? Because that's what's going to come out. Some of you are like, man, I really want to, like, I want to think rightly. Pastor Hyden says, I want to think new, but what do you keep putting in? Old. What goes in? That's what's going to come out. 
Some of you are like, man, I just keep having these terrible dreams. Maybe because you're putting stuff in, and that's what's trying to come out. And that's a, that's a principle. When you start putting this in, it's going to start coming out of you. In your language, in your thinking, in your heart, in your living, what comes in must come out. Let me give you another reason why this is supernatural. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Isn't that a good news? Can I get an amen from somebody? Amen. Right? This is an amen-worthy statement because, listen, I need supernatural light. I need a supernatural guide for my life. If not, I'll stumble and I'll fall and I'll make a train wreck out of the life God's given me. But he says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path, enough to take one more step. It's found in the, if you don't get in the word, you might not see it. And you need to see it. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17, some verses that maybe you're familiar with. All scriptures breathed out by God is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What that's teaching us here is that this book can do something in your life, can teach you something, can train you with something, can help you if you start thinking biblically. It'll mold you. Not, not to be a Bible thumper that everywhere you go, it's like you have to just be, um, you have to become Pharisaic. The Pharisees had the, the word all up in them, but the problem is they didn't understand why the word existed. It's for us to have a relationship with God, not to beat people over the head with it. Amen? So you can make anything an idol, even the word. When the word was designed to do these things, to, to reprove us, to correct us, to teach us, to give us a light, to guide us that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, right? So if you want to get active in your faith, because maybe you're here today and you're like, man, I really want to start getting active in my faith. I want to I do that. Well, what goes in is what will come out. That, let me give you one more uh, reality statement. To, to get in the word until the word gets in you. How about that? Get in the word until the word gets in you. How much should I read, Pastor Hyden? Should I read like the Bible in the year? Should I like start with a chapter a day? Should I read like a, ch a chunk a day? Should I just read the verse of the day? I I'm not going to give you what you should do. Just get in the word until it gets in you. All right? If you do that, it'll, it'll work. You'll, you'll, you'll do well. If you just get in this book until it just gets in you, you're going to do, do good. Fifth and final point is this. Think practical. Think practical. So th think Jesus. Think historical. Think reliable. Think supernatural. And now think practical. In other words, what do I do with it all? I believe, Pastor Hyden, that the Bible's supernatural. I believe that it's reliable. I believe that it's historical. I believe Jesus affirmed it and validated it. What do I do with it now? Well, get practical with it. Get up in it. Get in the word until it gets in you. I want to use uh, for a model for this point a guy in the Bible by the name of David. And we've spent some time with David. I preached a series called Identity Theft on the life of David last year, which was powerful for my own life. But I recognize something about David. That David has a, um, he has a title that God gave him that's unlike anybody else. Do you know what God said about David? Does anybody know? God said, you are a, a man after my own heart. Now, how could David be a man after God's own heart when he's so sinful? 
I think David was a man after God's own heart because he was a man after God's own word. I really believe as I look at David's life that God said, man, this dude is after my heart because of the time he spent with God in his word. That God looked at David and said, you're a complete mess, but man, you, you keep getting back up and getting back in the word. You must really want my heart because God's heart is revealed through his word. Let me give you just a little tour of Psalm chapter 119 before we close. Psalm 119, look at this together. David's writing in, the, in his love letter, um, Psalm 119, he says it like this, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. Precepts is another word for God's writings. David says, I'll meditate on your, your writings. Psalm 119, verse 23, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Meditate means think about, right? Your statutes is another word to define the word. Psalm 119, verse 27, make me understand the way of your precepts. That's a good prayer. I'll meditate on your wondrous works. God's wondrous works are found in the Bible. 119.48, I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, by the way, and I will meditate on your statutes. Let's keep going. He's not done with this chapter yet. Verse 78, as for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. I've never heard anybody say that. It's my meditation all the day. Verse 99, your testimonies are my meditation. Verse 148, my eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. Where, do you, where can you find God's promises? In his word. This is just one chapter. It's a long chapter, 48, 148 verses, right? But we see here that David was a man after God's own heart because he meditated on God's heart. Meditation is a biblical discipline that we all should practice. But don't just meditate on the earth. Don't meditate on the universe. Don't meditate on the weather. Meditate on the word. Amen? Get alone with God. Get in his word until it gets in you. Changes the way you think. It'll change the way you live. Spurgeon says a Bible that is falling apart belongs to somebody that isn't, right? Bible that is falling apart belongs to someone who isn't. Get inside that word and think biblical, amen?